As many of you know, we've been in this series on faith, and we've had a mini-series within the series lately where we've been looking at faith through the eyes of Abraham, who is this tremendous figure in the Bible, actually probably one of the leading figures in the history of the world, the history of religion, because you see that Islam and Christianity and Judaism, they all claim him as a father in their faith. And so we've been looking at faith specifically through his eyes for a few weeks now. And last week we came to one of the more interesting, one of the more famous or infamous stories in all the Bible where Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his son. And it's a tremendous passage because through this passage we actually see some things about faith that I don't think we would actually understand or see otherwise. So I'm really excited to get back to this very difficult text. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Genesis chapter 22 verses 1. Through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Uh, and, and I just want to point out real quickly that we know what God's doing. He's testing Abraham. It says it right here. It says at the beginning of this story in the book of Hebrews, he's being tested. Only it's not a test of elimination where God is trying to see what Abraham is made of. It's a test of preparation where God is in the test changing what Abraham is made of enabling him to root more deeply in God. That's the whole purpose of the test, to strengthen your faith in God because God is the ultimate source of our strength. He's being tested in the best of ways. Let's continue with the text. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split the wood for a burnt offering And set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father? And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Now let's read from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 17 through 19. By faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be called through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So God here, of course, is testing Abraham in the nature of the test is to bring Abraham to a point of apparent contradiction, where there's an apparent contradiction between the command of God and the 
the promise of the God or the, uh, the blessing that's attached to the promise. God has said, you need to sacrifice your son, the one through whom the blessing is going to come. But of course, if Abraham does this, he can't figure out how in the world the blessing is going to come if he sacrifices the one through whom the world is going to be blessed. So this is bringing Abraham to a point of absolute and utter surrender where it seems that you've got the wisdom of God on the one hand and the wisdom of man on the other. Abraham's wisdom is competing with the wisdom of God. It seems like God's commanding something over here, but the command is pulling him out of the promise or pulling him away from the blessing that's attached to the promise. Every time you're in the midst of testing, however that testing happens, that's what's going on. You're being called to a point of utter and complete surrender to the will of God, even though it may seem to you at the moment to run contrary to his promise, to his blessing. It may even seem that all the wisdom of God runs contrary to everything that makes sense to you. That's the nature of the test. It brings you to this point of utter surrender. Now, the the question is, is this really necessary? I mean, does God really have to test you and to test me like this? Because this is a pretty extreme test. This is an arduous, arduous test. To get to the answer more precisely, we need to understand exactly what it is that God is asking of Abraham here because Abraham is being commanded not just to take the life of his son he's being commanded to offer his son up as a burnt offering a whole burnt offering now in the Old Testament there were lots of different offerings that were were given and some of them many of them were partial you would eat a certain portion of the sacrifice and a certain part was burned up and when you offered the whole burnt offering it was your way of saying all of that I all that I have everything that I am this whole deal it's yours without remainder without leftover without reservation so when god says you take your son isaac and you offer him as a whole burnt offering god is saying you've got to give him completely wholeheartedly without reservation to me and you just wonder well why does god ask that of abraham concerning his son i can understand a cow i can understand a goat but you're talking about your son why does god do this The clue is in the way that God says it to Abraham. There's this particular way that God phrases everything. He says to Abraham, you take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, your beloved, and offer him as a whole burnt offering. In many respects, Isaac had become Abraham's one and only, his little only, the foundation of his life, what was central to his life, his whole world revolved around Isaac. And that's understandable because Isaac's the good kid. Isaac, if you look through the Bible, he's the one that just seems to have his act together. Abraham's up and down. Jacob's certainly up and down. Isaac just seems to be a pretty good person, but it's more than that. Isaac is the child of promise. He's the one that God says, I'm going to fulfill my promise. This whole blessing is going to come through Isaac. And not only does God promise this child who's miraculously born, but he's also the one who, who God just actually fulfills the promise right in front of Abraham. So in many respects, Isaac is the indication, he's the evidence of the supreme faithfulness of God. So every time Isaac is, is seen by Abraham, Abraham is seeing not just a promise, but the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of God attached to the future promise. It's his bridge to the future. And of course, Abraham's really, really old. And Isaac is young, and so Isaac represents vitality and youth and the future and all these things. So it is understandable 
that Isaac becomes Abraham's little one and only. That Isaac has become, for Abraham, the bottom line. Isaac, essentially, not because of any fault of Isaac's, Isaac essentially enslaves Abraham. Abraham looks on Isaac as essentially... Isaac is the, the, Abraham is the love slave, essentially, to Isaac. His whole life is bound to Isaac. And that's the problem. That gets us to the heart of the whole issue. If you can put this on the screen, the real enemies of God in your life are typically not the bad things, but the good things that have the potential to become your one and only. Now, you're going to have to listen real carefully to what I'm saying here because this is what separates people who are merely religious from people who are actually Christian. Repenting of the bad things is difficult, but it's really, really common, and everybody in some respect or another will repent of the bad things. They'll turn from the bad things. They'll change their mind about the bad things. And again, it's not really easy to give up the bad things because there's an attraction in sin, and that's why we have support groups, and that's why people backslide, and that's why people, you know, just they don't just turn their back on it and then everything is rosy in the future. But it's real common because when a person sees the bad thing to be the bad thing, they say, I don't want that bad thing in my life anymore because it's a bad thing. I don't like the bad thing. Everybody does this. We don't all agree on what the bad thing is, but once you see that it's a bad thing, you say, I don't want that bad thing because it's a bad thing. But what separates the men from the boys, the women from the girls, is repenting of the good things. You say, what do you mean, repenting of the good things? They're good things. Why would I turn my back on the good things? It's not that you need to get rid of the good things, but you might change your mind about the good things. Because very commonly, the good things become your one and only thing. And when a good thing becomes the one and only thing, it's become the ultimate thing. And that's a terrible thing. Now, before I press on this a little bit further, especially as we think about Abraham and Isaac, let me tell you a little story that I think is going to be helpful to you. There's a pastor, M. Craig Barnes, who tells about a time when he was doing some premarital counseling for a couple. And as he's doing the premarital counseling, of course, they're really sticking with him. And, and, and they've gotten to the end of the whole process. I think it might have been a six-week process, nine-week process. At the end of the final counseling session, as the couple's about to leave, the groom-to-be just blurts out, I'm so scared to death of this. And, of course, now he's got the bride's attention. And uh, he looks at her real quickly and says, No, no, honey, you don't understand. It's not that I'm afraid of marrying you. I'm afraid of losing you. And he goes on to explain that when his mother died, he was overwhelmed with grief. And he tells her, I love you even more than her. And I just cannot imagine being able to recover from ever losing you. And then the young man looks at the pastor, Pastor Barnes. And Pastor Barnes knows that in the look... He's wanting the pastor to tell him, everything's going to be okay, you're young, your bride's young, everything's going to be fine, nothing's going to happen to you. But Pastor Barnes has done too many funerals of young people to give him that kind of advice or direction. Here's what Pastor Barnes tells this this young man who's panicking before the wedding. He says, in my experience, 100% 100 of all marriages come to an end, some tragically, through divorce or early death, others last for over 60 years. If your marriage is long and filled with intimacy, then when death comes, you're going to be even more in love than you are now. Then it will hurt even more to say goodbye when the time finally comes. And that's the best scenario you've got. 
So why do you want to go through marriage wondering if this is the day you'll lose your beloved? Give her up today. Get the grieving over with. Die to your right to have her. Die to your fear of losing her and die to the myth that you can keep her. Until you do, you'll be too afraid to enjoy her. Now, I doubt that's what the groom wanted to hear. But in a very real sense, it's only when you give up the good for the best that you're able to enjoy the good for what it is. And that is the good. When you give up the good for the best, you're able to enjoy the good for what it is. It's the good, but it's not the ultimate. And in a certain respect, you're liberated. But it's really, really common for people to take the good and turn it into the ultimate. And so on occasion, we need to ask ourselves this question. What in my life is there of which I've said, if only? If only I were married, then my life would be complete. If only I were single. If only I weren't married anymore, then my life would be complete. If only I had children. If only I had children more like these other children. If only I didn't have to worry about children, then my life would be complete. If only I had a job or a better job or a different career. Or if only I had the good looks. Or if only I could keep or hang on to these good looks. If only, then my life would be complete. Whatever you say that of, if, that, if you've got an if only like that, that's your real foundation. That's your ultimate b- bottom line. And if it's anything that belongs on the periphery and you've made it your bottom line, whatever you've brought to the center wrongly needs to be pressed back out to the periphery because in life there's only one if only. There's, there's only one, one and only that deserves to be at the center, and that would be God. God graciously comes along every once in a while and he causes us to repent of the good. Because we've taken the good and we've made it the ultimate and that gets in the way. Because only when the Lord and the Lord alone is the source and your trust, only then are you able to do what it is that God wants you to do. And that is to do the good that he has prepared in advance for you to do. Until the Lord and the Lord alone is your trust, you're going to be anxious. You're going to be bitter. You're going to be despondent. You're going to be angry. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be in despair. Because all of life could take away your little if only. Or when your if only disappears, your life falls apart. God in his grace removes those one and onlys, to the periphery so that he and he alone can be at the center. And that's when you experience liberation. God comes to Abraham and he sees that Abraham has taken Isaac and he's made him his little one and only. And because of that, he experiences an enslavement. When you are enslaved to a little if only or a little one and only, you are enslaved with a special sort of enslavement that you don't even understand until you've Giving it up. The Bible teaches in so many different ways that if you're going to experience greatness, if you're going to experience liberation, if you're going to rise above despair and depression and despondency and anxiety and all the rest, you've got to be rooted in the Lord alone. Here's how Jeremiah puts it. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is in the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. 
It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. This is very much like the godly man in Psalm chapter 1 where it says, He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The Bible consistently communicates you've got to take those little if-onlys or the little one-and-onlys and press them to the periphery, and God is going to help you along those lines. God comes to Abram and says, you've done something with your son that is understandable, but it's inappropriate. We've got to push him to the periphery. And so when God comes to Abraham and says, you need to take your son, your one-and-only son, Isaac, whom you love, your beloved, and sacrifice him, God's not so concerned about the death of Isaac as much as he's concerned about the heart of Abraham being placed on the altar. It's Abraham's whole heart that God's after, not the death of his son. And I want you to notice this, that in the end, God does not take the life of Isaac. In the end, God is completely satisfied with the reality that Abraham has placed his heart on the altar, and that's why God does not require, ultimately, the death of Isaac. Because God looks upon the heart, and it's the heart of Abraham that that God is after. It's not his son. That's why you read this in verse 12. You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. As far as God was concerned, Abraham had consecrated his son to the Lord as if he'd actually been burned up on that altar. God did not need to see anything more than God had already seen, which is why Isaac is not actually demanded from God. Just because God demands that we offer these things to God doesn't mean that he actually wants to take them. Oftentimes, when we offer these things wholeheartedly without reservation to God, we get them back in a way that we'd never had them before because we were enslaved to them. And God doesn't want us to be enslaved to anything because he's the only lover who, when you love him wholeheartedly without reservation, sets you free and makes you great. So again, what's the, what's the whole point of the testing? Why does God have to test us the way that he tests us? Because he wants us to have the right center. Because until your trust is in the Lord and the Lord alone, he can't do the great things that he wants to do through you because your life is not about you. This is why God tests the elect so severely. And Abraham is one of the elect of God. And I know around Baptist churches we don't like to talk about the elect because we go, oh yeah, the Calvinists are over there, the Armenians are over here, and I want to escape all that. That's why I came to a Baptist church because, you know, we don't want to talk about it. I get it. But the reason people get sort of uptight about the whole doctrine of election and the language of election is because oftentimes the language is taken out of a greater context, and the greater context is the call of God and the advance of his kingdom and bringing glory to him. The, the, the whole doctrine of election is a part of a grander scheme of God's for the salvation of humankind. The doctrine of election is not primarily about who gets, who gets to be blessed in particular. It's not about individual salvation. The doctrine of election fits in a, in a broader scope of God's plan to advance his kingdom in this world. And so you're elected for a purpose, to be a blessing to other people. It's like Abraham. He's elected by God. Why? He's blessed to be a blessing to other people. Christopher Wright puts it like this. I think this is really helpful to us. It is as if a group of trapped cave explorers choose one of their number to squeeze through a narrow flooded passage to get out to the surface and call for help. The point of the choice is not so that she alone gets saved, but that she is able to bring help and equipment to ensure the rest get rescued. Election in such a case is an instrumental choice of one for the sake of the many. Like Abraham, you've been blessed to be 
a blessing. You are an instrument of blessing. And since you are an instrument of blessing, that's why you've been elected. Don't be so surprised if God doesn't come along and take you, his instrument, and refine you. Put you in the fire, heat you up to the point where you feel like you're going to melt. And then he comes along and pounds you or he rubs against you and makes you sharp because your life is not about you. It's for the benefit of other people. And so God is going to test you and he's going to test you and he's going to test you until you're in a position where you're of maximum benefit for his glory in the advance of his kingdom. That's why we cooperate with this testing, not simply that we will become better and enjoy our own little blessing so that we are more useful to him. That's why we pass the tests. And don't be surprised that when you pass the test that God's ability to use you doesn't just increase, but don't be surprised that this actually happens. When he tests you and you pass the test, sometimes there's an immediate benefit to other people simply because you've passed the test. Let's think about it like this. Think about Isaac. Do you think, really, really, do you think that Isaac ever forgot his time at the top of Mount Moriah? No. Do you think that Isaac needed his dad to do what his dad did for his benefit? Actually, yes. Let's think about Isaac. What does his name mean? His name means he laughs. What's that all about? Here's the story. Here's the narrative background. God came to Abraham a year before Isaac is born and says, Abraham, I want to give you a son, the son of promise to you and your wife, Sarah. Abraham had tried to take matters into his own hands, and so he took Sarah's handmaiden, this Egyptian handmaiden, and then he had a child by her and he just because he just couldn't wait on God any longer and all the rest. And later God says, that wasn't my plan. Trust me on this. I'm going to give you a son. After this announcement... Check out Abraham's response. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a ninety-year-old woman, give birth? Abraham laughed, but it wasn't the laughter of joy or the laughter of faith. It's the laughter of cynicism. It's It's the laughter of doubt. That's Isaac's name. He laughs. Might as well just spell it out. Dad laughs at God because he just had a hard time with his promises. And when God said I was going to be born, my dad just laughed. He fell on his face and laughed at God. That's the name. That's a terrible name. That's his heritage. But God gives us adults, he gives us parents opportunities to mark our children. For the good rather than for the bad. God gives us actually opportunities frequently to transfer faith to those who still trust us, to our children. Not just to give them doctrine, not just to pass along information. God actually gives us opportunities to transfer faith to our children. Now I talked about how before you can't live faithfully, you can't live vicariously through someone else. It's not enough for your parents to have faith, but you don't have faith. Faith, it cannot be done vicariously, but at the same time, as a parent, you have the ability, or as a grandparent, or as a friend, or as a spouse, you do have the ability to transfer faith to other people through your faithfulness, especially when these other people still trust you. Let me put it like this. Let me give you this illustration. 
Jill Briscoe tells about a time when her son, her eldest son, David, was told by his dad, next Monday, you're not going to school. You're going you're, you're to go get an x-ray. So Monday rolls around. Little David gets in the car with his dad. And little David is white as a sheep. And, and he, dad had told him back on Friday, you're going for an x-ray on Monday. Well, Monday rolls around and dad says, are you, are you, are you scared? Are you frightened? And David says, well, of course I'm scared. And the dad says, why? And David says, well, I know what an execution is. Now, the amazing thing is he'd been thinking about this for three days, and he still got in the car to go with his dad to his execution. Why? Well, it's really not that complicated. Kids trust their dads. Why is it that Isaac is going with Abraham up the mountain, carrying the wood on his back, sees the knife in his dad's hand, sees the fire in his dad's hand? Why is he doing this? It's not that complicated. Isaac trusts his dad. He goes up the mountain because dad leads him there. But here's what's really cool. When Isaac comes down the mountain, he didn't just trust in his dad. He trusted in God like never before. Why? Because he saw Something in his dad that he'd never seen before. And I don't think this is exaggerating here. Because when you think about the different patriarchs, there's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All, all of them, except for Isaac, get name changes. Abram, is, he becomes Abraham. Jacob wrestles with God. God renames him Israel. Isaac, who has the worst name of all, I think, never gets a new name. You know why? Because I think that God gave Isaac everything Isaac needed that day on that mountain. You are never too old to pass the next test that God has given you. Some of you in this room, you have failed tests in the past. You failed as a parent. You failed as a friend. You failed as a spouse. You failed as a grandparent. And you just kind of think, you know, I kind of transferred in some respects unfaithfulness and doubt to my children by my example. But it is never too late as a parent or as a grandparent or as a spouse or a friend through your faithfulness to begin transferring something else. God had a tremendous call on Abraham's life to be a blessing to the world, but his vocation got started real simply by just being an example to his own family. Faith, forsaking all I trust him, faith can be transferred, especially to those who trust you. So when God sends you a test, you pass the test because, again, your whole life's not about you. You're an instrument of blessing to other people. You have been elected to bless other people. And when you are faithful, those who are closer to you will take notice and you can profoundly impact their lives no matter what you have done before. So you want to pass the test, whether it's a test of God told you something that you just don't like or it's a particular calling on your life that you don't want to follow through, or maybe there's a command or a doctrine or a teaching from the Bible that you just don't like and you think your wisdom is above God and you're tested. You need to pass those tests because you're just an instrument, but you're a powerful instrument to other people. 
And God has a plan for you. I was asked this after the last sermon. Do you really think that I'm as important as Abraham? Not me. I mean, like he was talking about himself. That, that God has actually elected me to, to make a difference, a powerful difference, an eternal difference in other people's lives. And my honest answer is yes. It's not just because you're an amazing instrument. And I love the opportunities to hear from Jolene and from Phil Smith and and last week from Lois Robinson and we'll hear from other people. It's not just that you are an amazing instrument. You're an amazing instrument in God's hand. You're the brush. He's the artist. Why wouldn't you want to cooperate with those tests where he's cleaning the brush or sharpening the the axe oh man god's got a tremendous plan for your life cooperate with his testing because he wants to make you great and use you tremendously so when it comes to the test that god brings how do we pass the test that's the final question and then we're done with abraham and we'll be on a another sermon series next week entitled us and it's not based on the movie okay that's out it's totally different will be in Ephesians. But here's the question. How do I pass the tests that God gives? Two things. It's super simple. The first is you think. Think. One of the earliest of the early church fathers, Tertullian, said, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? What does the church have to do with the academy? And, and by, by saying this, he meant Jerusalem's the center, the center of religion and Athens is the center of Greek thought and reason and philosophy. What does faith have to do with reason? And his implicit answer was nothing. Unfortunately, the church has sort of followed that lead for the last 18 and a half centuries, and that's terrible. The Bible consistently teaches that while God's understanding is way above our level of understanding, faith and reason are not competitors. They run along the same tracks. And we've already covered this in the book of Hebrews. But let's look at this in particular with regards to Abraham, this incredible example of faith. Look at what the scripture tells us. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now, some people say, oh, no, Abraham knew that God was going to raise his son from the dead. No, he didn't. No, no, he didn't. He reasoned it out. But the scripture doesn't say that Abraham knew that God would. He, it says he knew that he could. This is faith. This isn't presumption. God looks, Abraham looks at God's character, he looks at his characteristics, he looks at his qualities, and he thinks things out. And he's thinking, at least in a general sense, every time in the past, and this is true if you look at Abraham's life, every time in the past where I chose my wisdom over God's wisdom, things did not go well. I will not be fooled again. It looks like on occasion, if I'm going to follow God's command, that's embracing death, but I know that while it looks that way, in the end there's always some sort of a resurrection. Abraham is reasoning things out. Specifically, not just in a general sense, specifically he's thinking, God has promised that he's going to bless the world through my son, Isaac. He's promised future generations through my son. I cannot imagine that God would be unfaithful, that God would break a promise. That's a very reasonable assumption. He also reasons things out. In the past, God has brought Life from death. He did it through two bodies, mine and Sarah's. We were as good as dead, at least from a reproductive standpoint. They were long gone. But God brought death, God brought life out of death. 
And so Abraham's thinking, I could more readily imagine God raising my son literally from the dead than I could possibly imagine God breaking a promise. He's also reasoning things out that in the past God has accepted a lamb or some sort of substitute as a placeholder for salvation. And so when Isaac asks, okay, Dad, where's the lamb? Abraham just says, well, God will provide. He'll show a lamb. He's reasoning things out, the Bible says. So what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? What does faith have to do with reason? Here's the answer. Everything. If you're having a struggle in your faith, you don't think less. You need to think more. Press in all the more deeply. Think more clearly. Think about it. I know that we grow up in a culture or context where it's like faith is over here and reason's over here. And if you just want to be a faithful person, you just need to think less. That doesn't come from the Bible. You want to pass the test that God gives you? Think more. Think more clearly. That's what Abraham does. There's a second thing, though, that you need to do in order to pass the test, whatever the test is that God has given to you, and that is you look to the substitute that God provides. Here's where a lot of people have trouble with this passage, and I understand it. People come to this passage and they go, oh, God's being immoral. God's telling Abraham to murder his son. That's just terrible. But that's not what God is telling Abraham to do. What he says to Abraham is you take your son and you offer him as a burnt offering. He doesn't say, murder your son, slit his throat, burn his body, chunk it in the woods. That's not what God's saying. He's saying you give it as an offering, as a sacrifice. Why do you think Abraham does not object to this? Why do you think Abraham doesn't say, that's immoral, that's unjust? Because Abraham doesn't think it's immoral or unjust, because Abraham knows that his firstborn belongs to God. Not just in Jewish thought, but in, in, in Eastern thought, in the ancient Eastern cultures, all of them, they all understood that the firstborn son was the representative for the family. They, they all understood that the firstborn son got all the inheritance. They got all the wealth. Why? Because, mom and dad, that's the right thing to do. No, actually, they're sitting right up here. No, that's not. Well, you know, we can think that. Here's why the firstborn son got everything. Because in ancient Near Eastern cultures, all the family, everything they had, everything they were, all their hopes and dreams, they were just all wrapped up in the son. The son represented the whole family. So when God comes to Abraham and says, your son Isaac, offer him as a sacrifice. His life is forfeit. You know what God is saying? God is saying, his life is mine. You're a sinner, Abraham. Your son's a sinner. The whole family sinners. And so his life is, is, is forfeit. He's, he, he, as a representative of the family, it's only just that he would give his life for the whole of the family. He represents the whole family, and the wages of sin is death. I've got to have a sacrifice. There has to be appropriate payment. Now you say, well, that's just kind of brutal. Well, here's the, the fuller story. God never wants to take the life of the firstborn. You remember the story in the Exodus where the death angel passes over and all the firstborns that are saved, why are they saved? Because God says there's lamb, there's, there's the blood, put the, door of, put the blood on the doorpost so the firstborn can be preserved. God doesn't want to take the life of the firstborn. He just says it's appropriate. 
And so you go over to Exodus chapter 22 and Numbers chapter 3, and you can kind of confirm this, but God tells the people in Numbers chapter 18, verse 16, hey, you can redeem your firstborn son even. His life ought to be forfeit, but you can redeem his life by just giving five shekels. It was a little weird. People go, okay, I've sinned. We've all sinned. Payment has to be made. Our firstborn son is the representative of the whole family. He ought to give his life, but God doesn't actually even require that. We can redeem him. But So there was this broad, vague understanding at the very least. So when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you take your son, your one and only son Isaac, and offer him as a whole burnt offering, the struggle in Abraham's mind is not, is this immoral or is this evil, is God being wicked? That's not the struggle. The struggle for Abraham is this. Oh God, I know that you're just. I know that you're holy. I know that I've sinned, we've all sinned, and payment must be made. You're a just and holy God. But God, you promised that you would bless through Isaac. Implicitly, you promised that he would live. How can you be both the God of the command and the God of the promise? How could you possibly be the God who is completely just and the justifier of Isaac? I don't understand. You, you are a holy, holy God and you're a completely merciful God. You're the God of the command and the God of the promise. How is this going to work? I don't know. And in the end, he just thinks, well, God, you must provide something that I can't give. And so to the way, on his way to the top of the mountain, when Isaac asks, where's the lamb? Abraham, well, God will provide. He'll do something. Abraham is able to pass his test because he's able to see that God will provide, that God will show him a lamb. Now, we are in a much more advantaged position because God has already shown us the lamb. Here's where it gets really cool. Do you know where Abraham and Isaac were when they, when they see the, the lamb, when the ram is presented to them? Do you know where they were at this time? At the top of Mount Moriah. Do you know where that is? That's where the temple was built. The temple was built on the mountain called the Lord Will Provide. Now, the temple's not there anymore. If you go to Jerusalem today, you'll go to the Dome of the Rock. It's where the Muslims have built this Dome of the Rock. You know what's called, called the Dome of the Rock? Because it's a dome over a rock. And the rock that's under the dome is the rock that Abraham placed his son Isaac on. That's where the altar is. That's how tradition has it. Of course, they think it was Ishmael. They kind of changed a few things. But that's where, that's where they were, on Mount Moriah, where the temple was built, which is right next to Mount Calvary. So here's what we get to see. This is so great. We see God, our Heavenly Father, marching up into those same mountains, leading His Son into those same mountains. And like Isaac, Jesus is carrying on His back the wood for sacrifice. Isaac and his father have a conversation. Jesus and his father have a conversation. Only the conversations go differently. Isaac asks his dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham, God will provide. Jesus cries out to the father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And 
and God is silent. And there's no one there on the top of Mount Calvary to tell the Father, stay your hand, drop the knife. And because our Heavenly Father follows through with His only begotten Son, His beloved, we don't have to go to the top of the mountain. Abraham doesn't have to drop the knife. This is how you pass your test. You pass your test because you work things out in your head. You think things through. But you also look to the one who is in the midst of your testing with you, who for you passed the test. You work things out in your head, but you also look to the one who worked out your salvation in his flesh. And this is why we are in a unique position where we can look to God and say, God, I know how you can be the God of the command and the God of the promise and the blessing. I see how you can be the God who is just and the God who is merciful, the God of justice and the God of the promise. And God, why in the world would I ever withhold faithfulness from you? Because you passed the test for me. You were faithful to the point of death, the death of your son, even death on the cross. You work things out. You see what he's done. And you pass your test. And when you pass your test and God accomplishes in your life what God wants to accomplish, he'll make you great. And he'll use you for extraordinary things. Let's bow forward of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for our testing. It's difficult, it's arduous in the middle of it, but we know you have a plan, and it's a tremendous plan to actually bless the world through us. We don't deserve to be a part of that plan, but you've elected us. But it's painful sometimes being an instrument in your hand, but we know that your purposes are so high and so lofty and so right and so good that you'll do whatever you need to do so as to accomplish your purposes through us. So, Lord, we say thank you for the testing, but thank you also, Lord, for enabling us to pass the test because our faith is entirely reasonable and you have shown us everything we need to see. So, Lord, may we be faithful to you in all things from this day forward, trusting, Lord, that when we fall short, there is forgiveness, but trusting, Lord, that you have a plan for us to do more than fall short. You have a plan for us to be used as you used Abraham. May we follow in Abraham's footsteps, but even more so, may we follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who trusted you even to the point of death, even death on a cross, and yet you exalted him and you gave him the name that is above every name. May we follow the example of the one who was more than an example for us, who was actually the lamb that was slain. Make us faithful. Increase our faith. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.